0: This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to peripheral nerve injury and repair as well as Ewing sarcoma which are two topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. We'll start with peripheral nerve injury and repair and the first question reads Conduction velocity changes in peripheral nerve chronic compression syndromes result primarily from which of the following actions? And the choices are 1. Wellerian degeneration distal to the compression 2. Wallerian degeneration proximal to the compression 3. transection of individual axons 4. Schwann cell proliferation and apoptosis and 5. Apoptosis of the neuronal cell body So whereas early literature proposed Wallerian degeneration, recent studies have found that chronic compression of the peripheral nerve induces Schwann cell turnover, including both proliferation and apoptosis without axonal pathology. Additionally, the Schwann cell phenotype becomes less pro-myelogenic and upregulates pro-regenerative molecules such as vascular endothelial growth factor. Wallerian degeneration is a process that results from separating the axon from the cell body and the hallmark is granular disintegration of the axonal cytoskeleton that is triggered by increased axoplasmic calcium. But the correct answer to this question is 4. Conduction velocity changes in peripheral nerve chronic compression syndromes result primarily from Schwann cell proliferation and apoptosis. Moving on to the next question, which statement most accurately describes the physiology of peripheral nerve regeneration following an axonotmesis lesion? And the choices are 1. The proximal nerve segment undergoes Wallerian degeneration. 2. Axon growth occurs from the distal segment to the proximal segment. 3. Neurotrophic factors direct phagocytic activity, 4. Proximal axon budding allows for antegrade or distal axon migration, and 5. Axoplasm and myelin are degraded distally, predominantly by Schwann cells, for the first 12 months following injury. Axonomesis is disruption of the nerve axon following injury. Repair slash regeneration of the nerve occurs via proximal budding, followed by antegrade or distal axon migration. The peripheral nerve regeneration process begins with the distal segment undergoing wallerian degeneration, that is axoplasm and myelin are degraded distally by phagocytes. Existing Schwann cells proliferate and line up along the basement membrane. Proximal budding occurs after a one-month delay. This is followed by sprouting axons that migrate in an anterograde fashion to connect to the distal tube. Repair of the nerve can take months and often have poor outcomes. But the correct answer to this question is 4. The physiology of peripheral nerve regeneration following an axonotmesic lesion is proximal axon budding that allows for antegrade or distal axon migration. Lee et al. reviewed peripheral nerve injury and repair, and they commented that Wellerian degeneration, i.e. breakdown of the axon distal to the site of injury, is initiated 48 to 96 hours after transection. The Schwann cells then align themselves longitudinally, creating columns of cells called bungner bands. At the tip of the regenerating axon is the growth cone. Moving on to the next question, axon regeneration almost always occurs following a Sunderland second degree nerve injury because which anatomic structure is not injured? And the choices are 1, epineurium, 2, endoneurium, 3, perineurium, 4, myelin sheath, and 5, Schwann cell. Following a Sunderland second-degree injury, axon regeneration is possible because the endoneurium is intact. There are two classification schemes for peripheral nerve injuries, which include the Seddon and the Sunderland systems. Under the Sunderland classification, a second-degree injury is considered a part of the axonotmesis spectrum. The endoneurium, perineurium, and epineurium are still intact. This enables complete functional recovery. Lee et al. reviewed the pathophysiology and evaluation of peripheral nerve injuries. They note that in Sunderland type 2 injuries, there is physiologic disruption of the axons. Because the endoneurium is still intact, axons are able to regenerate. This process takes months. So again, the correct answer to this question is 2. Axon regeneration almost always occurs following a Sunderland second degree nerve injury because the endoneurium is not injured. Moving on to the next question, you are seeing a 24-year-old male in the emergency room after he was involved in a knife fight. He has severed the common digital nerve to the index finger on his dominant hand with an eight millimeter gap between the nerve ends. In counseling him about repair, which of the following options is as good as autologous nerve grafting? And the choices are one, glycolide trimethylene carbonate conduit, two collagen conduit, three silicone sleeve, four primary end-to-end repair, And five, polyglycolic acid conduit. So repair of segmental nerve loss in the hand using collagen conduits allow for nutrient exchange and accessibility of neurotrophic factors to the axonal growth zone during regeneration. While the other listed answers have been used, none has shown the efficacy of collagen conduits or autograft, making two collagen conduit the correct answer to this question. Lee et al. described the repair of peripheral nerves with a tubular collagen conduit and review supporting data from the in vitro and in vivo primate studies to this regard. Bertleff et al. described the recovery of sensory nerve function after treatment of traumatic peripheral nerve lesions with a biodegradable polyneuralac nerve guide compared to their control of end-to-end repair and no autologous grafting. They show equal results between primary end-to-end repair and their synthetic graft. Waitaya Winyu et al. compared two synthetic polyglycolic acid conduits to autogenous nerve grafting using histopathologic and neurophysiologic analyses in a segmental defect rat model. They found that collagen conduits and autografts produced comparable results which were significantly better than polyglycolic acid conduits. Moving on to the next question. A 55-year-old male laborer comes in with a chief complaint of clumsiness with his right hand for the past three months, including difficulty using a hammer while at work. He has had no injury to the right upper extremity. On physical exam, he has persistent small finger abduction-slash-extension with finger extension and active adduction. An EMG is performed and demonstrates ulnar nerve conduction velocities of 31 meters per second, where normal is greater than 52 meters per second. The patient's symptoms are most accurately described as, and the choices are 1, exonotmesis with ischemia origin, 2, exonotmesis with myelin disruption, 3, neuropraxia with ischemia origin, 4, neuropraxia with endoneurium disruption, and 5, neurotmesis. So the history and clinical presentation are consistent with ulnar entrapment neuropathy at the level of the cubital tunnel. This would be classified as a neuropraxia with ischemia origin, making 3 the correct answer to this question. Compressive injuries to the peripheral nerves are often the result of microvascular dysfunction as the nerves traverse a high to low pressure gradient. Peripheral nerve injury can be classified as neuropraxia, axonotmesis, and neurotmesis. Compressive neuropathies are typically neuropraxias with local myelin damage but not compromise of the major components of the nerve. In axonotmesis, there is wallerian degeneration and myelin loss distal to the site of injury. The most severe type is that of Neurotmesis. Neurotmesis is composed of a spectrum of injury in which all components are affected except for the perineurium or the endoneurium may be intact. The worst form of Neurotmesis is that of nerve transection. Hassan et al. reviewed the pathophysiology of cubital tunnel syndrome. They report nerve dysfunction results from ischemic changes secondary to compression. Compressive effects on the nerve can last greater than 24 hours even after the source of compression has been removed. Rempel et al. reviewed the pathophysiology of peripheral nerve compression syndromes. The authors indicate that deforming pressures to nerves are often the result of stenotic soft tissue canal boundaries. This leads to interference with local microvasculature of the nerve itself. Moving on to the next question, which of the following nerves has the most favorable regenerative potential in restoring motor function after a graft repair within half a year after being injured? And the choices are 1. Median, 2. Ulnar, 3. Radial, 4 tibial, and 5 perineal. So, of the choices listed, the radial nerve has the best opportunity for recovery, making 3 the correct answer to this question. Roganovich performed a prospective study of 393 graft repairs of the median, ulnar, radial, tibial, perineal, femoral, and musculocutaneous nerves, which showed that peripheral nerves differ significantly regarding the motor recovery potential, and the difference depends on the level of nerve repair. The following nerves had excellent recovery potential the radial, musculocutaneous, and femoral nerves. The following nerves had moderate recovery potential, the median, ulnar, and tibial nerves, and the perineal nerve had poor recovery potential. Moving on to the next question, vitamin B12 deficiency is a known cause of which of the following, and the choices are one, inability to whistle, two, peripheral sensory neuropathy, three, increased deep tendon reflexes, four, urinary retention, and five, hydrophobia. So vitamin B12 deficiency is a known cause of peripheral sensory neuropathy and B12 levels should be evaluated in patients presenting with peripheral sensory neuropathy. It is associated with decreased deep tendon reflexes, pathologic reflexes like Babinski's sign, and fatigue slash depression. The inability to whistle is associated with fascio-scapular dystrophy. Hydrophobia is associated with rabies infection. So the correct answer to this question is 2. Vitamin B12 deficiency is a known cause of peripheral sensory neuropathy. Smith and Singleton evaluated 138 patients referred with predominantly sensory symptoms to identify a standardized approach to diagnosis. They recommend that patients be tested for glucose tolerance and vitamin B12 concentration in all cases, but that other tests should be performed only when the clinical scenario is suggestive. Steiner et al. describe a case report of a patient with vitamin B12 sensory peripheral neuropathy and associated EMG evidence of nerve demyelination as the potential cause for the observed clinical symptoms. Moving on to the next question, which of the following peripheral nerve structures functions to cushion the nerve against external pressure? And the choices are 1. endoneurium, 2. fibronectin, 3. cadherin, 4. epineurium, and 5. perineurium. So the epineurium is a supportive sheath surrounding peripheral nerves that cushions fascicles against external pressure. It is comprised of a loose meshwork of collagen and elastin fibers that are aligned parallel with the nerve fibers. So the correct answer to this question is four, epineurium. And the final question for this topic, which of the following structures are slowly adapting skin receptors that detect pressure, texture, and low-frequency vibration and are best evaluated by static two-point discrimination? and the choices are 1, Meisner's corpuscles, 2, Pacinian corpuscles, 3, Merkel's receptor, 4, free nerve endings, and 5, Ruffini corpuscles. So Merkel's skin receptors are slowly adapting skin receptors that detect pressure, texture, and low frequency vibration and can be appropriately evaluated by static two-point discrimination, making 3 the correct answer to this question. Merkel's disc receptors adapt slowly and sense sustained pressure, texture, and low frequency vibrations. Zabo et al. state in their review that static and moving two-point discrimination are best to initially evaluate innervation density for both quickly and slowly adapting fibers. Vibratory moving two-point discrimination is best for evaluation of quickly adapting fibers. Meissner corpuscle is a rapidly adapting sensory receptor and is very sensitive to touch. Piscinian corpuscles are ovoid in shape, measuring approximately 1 mm in length. They respond to high frequency vibration and rapid indentations of the skin. Ruffini corpuscles are slowly adapting receptors that detect stretching of the skin. And moving on to the final topic for this review of Ewing sarcoma, the first question reads, In Ewing sarcoma, neoplastic properties are thought to be related to, and the choices are 1, environmental toxins, 2, a prior history of osteomyelitis, three, a prior history of viral illness, four, a prior history of trauma, and five, translocation of chromosomes. So in 95% of patients with Ewing sarcoma, there is an 11-22 translocation. This results in EWS FLI1 transcription factor that results in tumor cell proliferation. Other mechanisms causing tumor cell proliferation include inactivation of tumor suppressor genes or activation of proto-oncogenes. So the correct answer to this question is 5, translocation of chromosomes. Moving on to the next question, each of the following neoplasms demonstrate round cells when examined histologically except, and the choices are 1, embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma, 2, primitive neuroectodermal tumors, 3, Ewing sarcoma, 4, neuroblastoma, and 5, lyomyosarcoma. So lyomyosarcoma is a spindle cell neoplasm with cigar-shaped nuclei, making 5 the correct answer to this question. But to review, Ewing sarcoma primarily occurs in patients that are less than 20 years of age and is the second most common primary malignant bone tumor in children. The etiology of Ewing sarcoma, again, is an 1122 chromosomal translocation that produces the EWS-FLI1 fusion gene, which can be detected by PCR. Radiographic features of Ewing's include a lytic permeative lesion with layers of periosteal reaction creating an onion skin appearance. Gross pathology often appears similar to pus and histology includes sheets of round cells with large nuclei and small amounts of cytoplasm. Immunohistochemical staining is positive for CD99. Treatment consistently includes neoadjuvant multi-agent chemotherapy followed by either surgical resection or radiation. Neuroblastoma, primitive neuroectodermal tumors, Ewing sarcoma, and embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma are all described in the AAOS Comprehensive Orthopedic Review Textbook as having round cell components. Other processes that are often described as having round cells include eosinophilic granuloma, lymphoma, myeloma, and round cell liposarcoma. Moving on to the next question. After tumor staging, what is the most appropriate treatment for a 17-year-old male with stage 2b Ewing sarcoma in his proximal tibia? And the choices are 1. Neoadjuvant radiotherapy, marginal surgical resection, and adjuvant chemotherapy. 2. Neoadjuvant chemotherapy, marginal surgical resection, and adjuvant radiotherapy. 3. Neoadjuvant chemotherapy, wide surgical resection, and adjuvant chemotherapy. 4. Wide surgical excision and reconstruction and 5, radiotherapy and chemotherapy without surgery. So the treatment for a 17-year-old male with Ewing sarcoma in his proximal tibia is neoadjuvant chemotherapy, wide surgical resection, and adjuvant chemotherapy, making 3 the correct answer to this question. While non-resectable Ewing sarcoma may be treated with radiotherapy and chemotherapy alone, that is answer 5, the proximal tibia is considered resectable, and as such, wide excision and reconstruction with chemotherapy is the treatment of choice. Sluga et al. review their series of patients with Ewing sarcoma which suggests that neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by wide surgical resection is the treatment which affords the best long-term survival. With appropriate treatment including adjuvant therapy and negative margin resection, the five-year overall survival for Ewing sarcoma approaches 60%. In a similar fashion, Tony et al. review their series of patients treated for Ewing sarcoma. Of their cohort, they treated almost half, that is 47%, with radiotherapy alone and saw a significantly higher rate of local recurrence, that is in 24% of the patients. Whether this is due to the tumor biology, difficulty of achieving adequate radiation doses, or some other factor, they suggest that Ewing sarcoma should be treated with surgical excision when at all possible. Moving on to the next question, Which of the following tests is required for a standard workup of Ewing sarcoma that is not routinely obtained for staging of osteosarcoma? And the choices are 1 MRI, 2 CT scan, 3 bone scan, 4 protein electrophoresis, and 5 bone marrow biopsy. So bone marrow biopsy is a routine part of the staging workup for Ewing sarcoma and is not routinely obtained for staging of osteosarcoma. Again, Ewing's is a small round blue cell tumor that occurs most commonly in children and young adults. Clinical presentations of these tumors frequently mimic infection with low-grade fever, elevated white counts, and high markers of inflammation. The radiographic appearance will show a large lytic lesion in the metaphysis or diaphysis. Reactive periosteum may be lifted off the bone in multiple layers, termed onion skinning, which is characteristic but uncommon. Bone marrow biopsy is done because Ewing sarcoma can metastasize via the marrow. And moving on to the final question for this topic, for which of the following patients would a bone marrow biopsy be indicated during tumor staging? And the choices are 1, 15-year-old girl with bone-forming distal femoral lesion on radiographs, 2, 7-year-old boy with lipomatous lesion in his proximal thigh, 3, 3-year-old boy with pituitary intracranial mass, 4, 5-year-old girl with lytic diaphyseal femur lesion positive for the EWS FLI1 transgene, and 5, 12-year-old boy with Shepherd's crook deformity of his proximal femur and deactivating mutation in the G-beta subunit of the G-protein coupled receptor. So bone marrow biopsy for musculoskeletal sarcomas as we just discussed is only routinely done for Ewing sarcoma. Ewing sarcoma falls in the group of small round blue cell tumors, and while there is argument regarding the cell origin for Ewing's, most agree that the cell origin develops in the bone marrow in addition to the normal tumor staging, Ewing sarcoma requires a bone marrow biopsy at a distant site to ensure no marrow metastasis, which would change the patient's prognosis. So the correct answer to this question is four. A five-year-old girl with lytic diaphyseal femur lesion positive for the EWS FLI1 transgene would be most appropriate for a bone marrow biopsy during tumor staging. That's all for this question review session about peripheral nerve injury and repair, as well as Ewing sarcoma. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets Bullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.